please open the Word of God to the Old Testament Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Chapter 2. Our text today is from verses 8 through 13. Song of Songs 2, 8 to 13. It is the Word of God. Let us give it our reverent attention. Listen, my beloved, behold, he is coming, climbing on the mountains, leaping on the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he's standing behind our wall. He's looking through the windows. He's peering through the lattice. My beloved responded and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers have already appeared in the land. The time has arrived for pruning the vines, and the time and the voice of the turtle dove has been heard in our land. The fig tree has ripened its figs, and the vines in blossom have given forth their fragrance. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. We need to consider today, and really we do well to consider just as often as we can, the astounding covenant love of our Lord Jesus Christ for His one and only. His esposita, His preciosita, His church. It's a love that is so supremely perfect, so full, so comprehensive, so exclusively bound to you, his church, and so lasting that death itself has absolutely no power to interrupt it, not for a moment. Death can't change it, neither his death nor yours. His death, in fact, and the amazing revelations of power and love that lay just three days beyond it, his death only serves to confirm that you and he belong together forever. And the Holy Spirit early on suggests as much in the Song of Songs where a lover speaks to his beloved and says this, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death, jealousy as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Beloved, in a similar way, our Lord Jesus Christ loves you, his church, with all his being. The Apostle John in the Spirit tells us that this triune God coming to claim and betroth us in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, this God and his love are virtually coextensive. He writes, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So as far as the church is concerned, wherever there's true love, there is the true God 
working. Where God is at work, there is true love. There is love of the deepest and the truest and the clearest kind, the most satisfying, the most enduring love, divine love, of which the truest and greatest of human love is only a faint glimmer, a shadow. And friends, if you've ever been in love, and I hope you either have been or are now or will one day be, if you've ever been there, you know that that's saying quite a bit about the awesome love of God for His one and only bride, the church. God is love. He is. Faithfully, in every providential disposition of events, both human and angelic, including all things past, all things present, all things to come, all things in heaven, all things on earth and under the earth, in all things he puts the welfare of his beloved first. And yes, I've got to say, that includes even those hardest things with which we sometimes have to grapple. The things most difficult, the things most heartbreaking and perplexing, those private matters of which in all the world only you and the Lord Jesus Christ may even be aware. Under His sovereign control, even they are being secretly but mightily harnessed to the well-being of those he's loved with an everlasting love. Those around and beneath whom are the everlasting arms, because he is love. And his son, love incarnate to the church, greater love hath no man than Christ for his church. These he calls, in the 15th chapter of John's Gospel, his friends. We're going to take this friendship to the next level today with an amazing revelation that comes from his own lips. It is the exciting, the breathtaking, heart-pounding disclosure not uncommonly paralleled among young people and the young at heart in the spring of the year. When the breezes warm, when the blue bonnets are blossoming, it's the revelation that your friend if you ever even dared consider such a magnificent one, your friend, your friend, the champion of your class, the one you've secretly admired from afar ever since last September, the one who's helped you in your studies, the one who never laughed at your mistakes, the one who's always been faithful to your confidences, who's carried your books and your burdens for you over the icy paths of the winter past, your friend today has taken you aside and looked you in the eye and smiled that dazzling smile of his and confided to you, the church, his longtime companion, that he'd very much like to be so much more than friends. Oh, dearly beloved congregation of the Lord, don't turn away from him. 
Don't avert your eyes as he professes his love for you. Look at him directly who addresses you. Savor this moment because this man standing before you, the church, this isn't Joe Doofus who's bothered and annoyed you all year, who pulls your pigtails, who struggles along just to make passing grades, whose athletic prowess culminates in the filling of the team's water bottles. This isn't Joe Doofus who can't get a date. This is he. This is the one. The chiefest among ten thousand, the desire of nations, you've struck gold. Because he who's known you through all your years of freckles and missing teeth and the million other embarrassments of youth, he only has eyes for you. The springtime of the ages has come and by virtue of his gospel overtures, you, the church, and the Lord Jesus Christ are now much more than friends. Now, to be completely frank, the church of both Old and New Testaments has experienced a bit of trouble interpreting this love letter. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's Jewish rabbis in days long gone, actually forbade the reading of this book until one had turned... Not 18, not 21, not 25, but 30 years of age. It was just too racy, they thought, for younger minds. And even Matthew Henry in 1710 wrote this. He said, it requires some pains to find out what may probably be the meaning of the Holy Spirit in the several parts of this book. As David's songs are many of them leveled to the capacity of the meanest, and there are shallows in them in which a lamb may wade, so this of Solomon's will exercise the capacities of the most learned, and there are depths in it in which an elephant may swim. That was Matthew Henry. How deep is this book early in the third century? The Christian philosopher Origen wrote an explanation of these eight short chapters, an explanation published in 12 volumes. Nine centuries later, Bernard of Clairvaux died in the year of 1183, having delivered 86 sermons on it, only reaching as far as the end of the second chapter. Elephants really may swim in such depths of love. But let me cut to the chase. The Song of Songs is a book about the very best that human covenant love has to offer. The all-consuming mutual love of one man and one Woman, It is not some fancy drawn-out allegory that doesn't have tangible meaning in the present world. This book is just about as tangible, just about as sense-oriented as any book of the Bible. It's as tangible and sense-oriented as young love. The real, substantial, earthly, 
Heavenly love, such as young lovers imagine, could never diminish, much less come to an end. That's the Song of Songs. That's its beauty, that's its very best contribution to Christian living in the home, and that's its first intent. But, in this very relationship, which is about as close a thing to heaven on earth as some people ever experience, in this very relationship, we are able to get a small glimpse of the sheer glory, the joy, the passion that lives in the heart of God for His chosen people. Jesus and all the other apostles were, of course, well acquainted with this book, as they were with all the prophets who wrote of Israel's God as the faithful, loving, patient husband that he is, who wrote of Israel as his chosen bride, adorned with all his gifts and graces, and with all of this inspired literary imagery burned into their souls through the years, they chose deliberately, the apostles chose deliberately by the Spirit of God to describe the new covenant just this way. You, the church, are the bride of the risen Christ. And the end of the age toward which all of history is moving is going to be not your funeral, it's going to be your wedding feast. Now, Jesus in the Scriptures has professed His love always and only for you, His church. And you, the breathless young church who's dazzled by the news, you're anxious to hear more. Aren't you? Aren't you? How can this love from this amazing man, the God-man, fail to stir you, fail to move you. You want to hear more. You want to hear more of his love for you, more of his commitment to you, more of the plans he has for your future together. And you want to hear it, not from me, not from Jonathan, not from some third-party go-between who might just be setting you up for a broken heart. No, you, the church, need to hear it from his own lips. You've got to hear it from him. So let's give our attention again to the Song of Songs, the best of songs, the love song of Christ to his church. He who is yours by grace, in the most beautiful and discreet of oriental poetry, he tells you of his love for you. Specifically, he tells you how he came to this place of meeting with you today and then what he proposes from here. How then has Christ come from his eternal mansions of heavenly glory to his church? How has he come? That is, in what spirit did he come? With what attitude did he come? Now, Reformed theologians and preachers rightly tell you that he came in order to shoulder the curse of the law. We'll tell you that he came on your behalf to drink down the wrath of God to its last dregs, that he came, that man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, to bear the full penalty of the sins of his people in every place and every age. 
We'll tell you that it is by his stripes we're healed. All of which is exactly right. He did all those things. Mission accomplished on every point. The danger to reformed Christians is then to make the completely unwarranted leap of thinking that he came grimly. That he came into the world reluctantly. That he came into the world with a white-knuckled determination just to get through it so he could return again to the glory which he ever had with the Father before the world was. Friends, he came in the full knowledge of what lay before him. He knew of the law that we've broken that he now must keep. He knew in advance the mounting opposition of his adversaries. He knew in advance the shame and the scandal of the cross. He knew in advance the crushing curse of God that must fall now on his head as he carries far from us the guilt of our sins. The atoning death that folds itself upon him blackness upon blackness, horror upon horror for the space of three days. He knew in advance of the abandonment of the Father with whom he had enjoyed such consummate peace, such love, such joy since before the world was. Full well he knew that these things all lay before him. What then, knowing them in advance, did he therefore come timidly? Was he pale? Were his palms sweaty with fear, tiptoeing into a world that received him not? Was the Lord Jesus Christ, like Saul, found hiding among the baggage? Did he, like Jonah, board a ship for Tarshish? What's it say? It says this. Listen. The voice of my beloved. Look at this. He's coming, leaping on the mountains, springing on the hills. Beloved, from the very earliest days, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, Satan had done everything in his power to keep the Lord Jesus Christ from coming in the flesh to his people. From the murder of righteous Abel to Hagar's interference in God's promises to Abraham to the iron furnace of Egypt to the lawless age of the judges and the apostasy of her very first king the many black sins of David the rending of his kingdom the murderous reign of wicked Athaliah and so many others like her age upon age of Israelite idolatry the near extermination of the people and the promise in the days of Esther. And then again in the days of the Maccabees. And then again in the days of Herod, the baby killer. And when all else had failed through history, the last-ditch effort to disqualify Jesus, as Satan puts him to the test in the wilderness... Any one of these developments, 
any of a thousand more close shaves with the powers of darkness, had they succeeded, had they succeeded, might well have brought the whole plan of our redemption to a screeching halt. All of them together, ranged through history, constitute a mountain range of obstacles to the coming of Christ in the fullness of time to his church. And that spells cosmic disaster. Because if there is no Redeemer, no qualified Redeemer, then there is no redemption. No Redeemer? Then you and I are still in our sins. Still lost. Still alone. Barren. Desolate. And still perishing. And yet in the full resolve of his loving heart, in order to claim this chosen people as his own, come he did. Not crawling from the weary passage through long centuries of opposition. Not dragging himself along, fatigued by the constant rebellion of men and demons. No. He saw you from afar. He had you gentle on his mind ever since the eternal covenant was sealed by which the Father gave you to him. And so when he came to you, he came leaping, springing, energetically, like a gazelle, like a young stag. Ain't no mountain high enough to keep him from you, his one true love, his bride. His church. Because sometimes a phone call just won't do. A love letter's not enough. Had a love letter been enough, the scriptures of the Old Testament would have been enough. But when in all of human history has a love letter, or 39 of them, or 66 of them, when have they managed to satisfy the longing of those who send or receive them? They don't. They never have. They never will. He has to come in the flesh to see you. His bride, the church. To court you. His bride, the church. To win your heart. And now he's at your house, behind your wall. He's not going to sit in the car and just honk the horn until you come out. He comes to you. He comes all the way to you. Now he's at your window, at your lattice, peering in to get a first glimpse of you. Can you imagine that? Can you, the Reformed Christian in a Reformed church, actually contemplate this incredible love of Jesus Christ for his bride without the color rushing to your cheeks? Do you imagine this to be a cold, academic kind of love, if such a kind of love were even possible? A love that keeps you at arm's length from him? Search the scriptures and think again. Think again. Now he stands not at the door knocking. Now he stands at the lattice speaking 
through the window, through the Venetian blinds, we might say, speaking to you through that which half hides, half discloses him. He's completely here with his church, and yet he's not completely here, not as we like. He speaks to you through the lattice because you're not quite ready to see him face to face. You're not up and dressed. Maybe the sound of his coming has stirred you, but you're still so groggy with the long winter's night of waiting for him whom your soul loves. He speaks to you, his church, through the lattice. Unwearied by his incredible journey through the ages and across the world to find you, he speaks to you through the lattice. And having a word with you through the lattice isn't enough. He has a proposal for you. And here's what he says. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom, they give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. You see, the rabbis who studied this book in ages past and found it racy or found it obscene were quite badly mistaken and they lost the blessing. This isn't lewdness. This isn't human faithlessness. This is romance as romance was meant to be. Heavenly. Heavenly. Oh, that the church might experience such seasons of sweet fellowship with our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel has come and brought springtime with it. And his proposal is that we now walk with him in the fresh air, walk with him in the sunshine. It's a walk from which we'll not return unchanged. Through the lattice of these humble means of grace, he invites you, to arise, come, my companion, my beautiful one, and come along. The New International Version and the New American Standard Bible both have my darling in verses 10 and 13. My darling. The ESV translates it, my love. But companion companion is a better rendition of the word. You see, the church isn't the sugar-frosted princess of Jesus Christ. He never sets her up on some exalted ivory pedestal, as so many gullible young and not-so-young men do with their beloved, only to see her come crashing down at the first disappointment. It's not that way. No, you, the church, are his companion. And if we could teach our daughters to be companions to their husbands, if we could teach our sons to look for faithful companions and not goddesses for their wives, 
If we could do that, what a glorious model would the church then present to a culture that's blindly thrashing about for positive, satisfying relationships. You, the church, are the companion, feminine, singular, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he bids you arise and walk with him. But he loves you, remember. He courts you. And in the midst of this proposal, this invitation, he calls you his beautiful one. His chulita. Imagine that. Us. Beautiful. To Jesus Christ. Can it really be? Yes, it can, and yes, it is. There's an old saying that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And what that means is that we may be beautiful or handsome to others, not because of how we look on the outside, but because of the disposition of that other person toward us. Because they love us, and so are naturally inclined to think well of us, to think us beautiful, no matter what their eyes tell them. Your beauty as the church is at first only in the eyes of Jesus Christ. Only there. He's always been beautiful to us, at least for as long as we've had eyes to see, but it's hard to imagine our being so to him. He thinks otherwise for several reasons. First, he calls the church beautiful because God the Father has given you to him. And there's a special, unique delight that comes with knowing that you belong together. Then, too, he calls you, the church, beautiful because by word and spirit he's making you actually so. He's making you actually so. When I was in high school, I got around town in a 1966 Rambler classic four-door sedan. It started out white with blue interior. I had it painted green with blue interior. It had rust. The original carpet was long gone. It was missing several lengths of the metal door trim, parts I was never able to find. But I was working on it, and it was beautiful. When the Lord Jesus Christ looks at you, he sees you not only as you are, he sees you, his church, as you will be when he's brought you close when he's embraced you, when he's breathed his spirit into you, when he's brought you out of your dingy bedchamber into the full sunshine of his grace. So these words aren't idle flattery any more than the words of a devoted husband to the wife whom anyone else might call plain. They're not flattery. It's how even a mere man loves a mere woman. How much more so is it the way Christ 
loves his church. My dear friends, I urge you today to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to believe in the beauty he sees in you. It's not fiction. It's the truth because he's making it so. You're his companion. Walk with him. Walk with him. Now as his companion, you can expect the same treatment he received. No better, and certainly no worse. And he's told us as much. In this world, we'll have tribulation. He hasn't pledged to hold you up above the vagaries of life in this world. His pledge to you is actually much, much better than that. His pledge is to walk through it with you. As he's walked through it with his faithful confessors and martyrs of every age. And by his closeness, making even the fiery trials we endure, a walk in the eternal springtime of his love. Arise then, friends, and come along.